Well, let's turn together, speaking of God's word, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, and we'll be starting today with verse 16. I love that song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus, be my guide. It's how he guides me. Be near my side. It's through his word, as we've been seeing in Romans 10, that he really does come near. The question, though, I'd like to ask today is, is it a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? I think we'd all say yes, but sometimes no. Do you ever feel that you become so familiar with the word of God that it doesn't really strike you like it did uh, at least as on a regular basis as when you first believed. Ever feel like you're no longer hearing the voice of God through his word? Well, I sure have, and I don't think I'm the only one. That's why one of my standard prayers is Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may see it anew, that I may see wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. Jesus, be my guide through your word. Be near my side. Uh, it's kind of grown dull because it's so easy, it so easily becomes so familiar. And familiarity, as they say, breeds contempt. And when it does, God's word can go silent, sometimes for long stretches of time. And we're going to see today what you do when that happens. I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, the greatest of all illusions is the illusion of familiarity. That is, something, when something becomes too familiar, you take it for granted. So you don't really see it or appreciate it for what it is. Even what you know it is, you don't appreciate it. Like a spouse, for instance. We worked with single adults for years back in the 80s in Houston, many of whom had never been married. And it would always take some convincing as I was talking to them, or Julie, with some of them anyway, that uh, before they'd really believe that you could actually take a husband or a spouse for granted. Or children. We were infertile for six years, and it was like uh, unfathomable to us how you could take them for granted until we had them. And many of us have taken our parents for granted. I know I did to a good degree until they were gone, or, or anyone and anything. We can even become blind to the miracle of all of these things together, to the miracle of the creation. It's like Annie Dillard wrote, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author. She wrote, an infant, listen to this, who has just learned to hold up his head has a frank and forthright way of gazing about him in wonder and bewilderment. But in just a couple of years, it becomes all too familiar, and we take on the cocksure air of a squatter who comes to feel he owns the place. Wonders become commonplace. The whole of God's creation has been on fire from the word go. He throws intricacies and colossi down eons of emptiness with ever fresh vigor. The lone ping into being of the first hydrogen atom out of nothing was so unthinkably violently radical that surely it ought to have been enough, more than enough. But you Open the door and look what happens. All heaven is breaking loose all around us. 
In more ways than one, in bigger ways than we might ever imagine, the greatest of all illusions is the illusion of familiarity, even among God's children. Because nowhere is this more true than with the Bible. With those who have had it for so long that sometimes we no longer see it or appreciate it for what it really is. And this is no small thing because we're going to see today that if familiarity is among the greatest of all illusions, then one of the, one of the deadliest of all illusions is the illusion of familiarity with the word of God. Last week we saw that when God gave us his word, which is ultimately, as this passage teaches, as we've been seeing, which is ultimately all about Christ. When he gave us his word, he was actually handing us his son on a silver platter. And thank goodness, because we're lost without his help. So much so that far from being able, as Paul says here, to ascend or descend into some great spiritual quests or feats of accomplishments, we can't even get out the door on our own. The most we can do is open the door of our hearts and receive what he's laid right there, and that is the word of Christ. Paul's point, as we've been seeing, was that God has made it so easy for us to receive Christ by placing him literally on the tip of our tongue and at the door of our heart through his word. And we saw last week that it all boils down to the fact that all we have to do, all we can do really, is call. Remember that? Which we saw we need to do just as much as Christians as before we became Christians. To call on the name of the Lord based on his word to be saved. Not just from the penalty of sin, but daily, all through the day, from the power of sin. God's stimulus for this is the word of Christ, which is right here, in here, and all around us, which he lays at the door. And when we open the door and take it in, his word inspires faith in our hearts and all the rest. We saw that the fruit of a living faith is just calling on the name of the Lord. But the root Uh, of a living faith, as we'll see this time, has to do with receiving him. And that has to do with just hearing the word of Christ. Because faith comes by what? Hearing. Verse 17, our first verse for today. And hearing from the word of Christ. He He can't get in unless we really hear him. Which is why Christ said over and again, he who has, what? Ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Once he said, let these words sink into your hearts. Nothing's gonna happen without that. Because that's where it all begins. When we really hear the word of Christ that then does the work. Now, if you remember, Paul's talking about Israel in this section of Romans in chapters 9 to 11. He's talking about God's own chosen people. And here in chapter 10, he's explaining why Israel rejected Christ, just like uh, we have in America. In fact, we're going to see that there are some rather telling uh, parallels between God's people in that nation and God's people uh, in this nation. And a lot of it has to do with our hearing. Really, with the degree to which we've succumbed as God's people to, as I've titled this message, the illusion of familiarity. 
Again, Romans 10, starting in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Moving on now. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the world, and their words to the ends, uh, uh, to the ends of the earth. He can't get in unless you really hear him, which is why Christ said that over and again. Let these words sink into your mouth. And Paul's saying here, not only had Israel heard God's word once or twice, they heard it constantly, continually, like incessantly even. That's what Paul means when he says their voice has gone out into all the world. He's quoting from Psalm 19 here and comparing what they, have, they heard in Israel to the creation. The Psalms in 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night uh, reveals knowledge. David's calling our attention to what we call God's general revelation here through the creation, which is what he shows us about himself through his creation, which so easily gets clouded over as our eyes grow dim. Not just among unbelievers, but for among believers through the illusion uh, of familiarity. And uh, he's saying, look around you and you'll see a virtual flood of revelation. Which is one reason why infants gaze about in wonder and bewilderment. And by quoting this famous song, Paul is saying the people of Israel had received as great an outpouring of God's, uh, of God's special revelation through the word as all men have received through his general revelation through the world. That's how much indeed they've heard. Or at least how much he's spoken. Surely they have never heard, have they? That's a question with only one answer. It's like a no-brainer answer. On the contrary, Paul's saying, the whole nation of them had been virtually deluged with it. And then he asks the same question again in the next verse, verse 19 of Romans 10. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? To which he answers, from the very first, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you, who's just received a trickle of revelation. And Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. He's talking about the Gentiles here. And he's alluding to what they did with what they heard when he showed himself to them. He's saying, believe me, I could tell you a lot more about all Israel heard and what they didn't do it with it. But you might be more, it might be more pertinent to, to remind you of what the Gentiles did with what they, little they heard. They had just caught wind of the preaching compared to Israel. They, yet they ended up believing. And once Christ Came, so many of them responded that the Jews, rather than getting a clue of how hard of hearing they had become, the Jews became, as Paul says here, angry. They became jealously, murderously angry. The Gentiles had to make do with so little because they had neither the law nor the prophets nor uh, any of the writings. People like Rahab, the prostitute, uh, Ruth the Moabitess, people like the wise men from the east, the Ethiopian eunuch. The wise men just had a star. 
Millions and millions of others. They came to faith on just, on just like scraps of truth from the master's table compared to the feast that Israel had been enjoying for centuries. It was the illusion of familiarity that plagued the Pharisees. Now, you see this, of course, to this day. The same contrast between the haves and the have-nots, between places where there's a feast and places where there's a famine of God's revelation. And the most glaring contrast in the world today, indeed in all of world history, is between the poor little rich kids in places like America who are dying of malnutrition at a table of plenty and the underprivileged and less fortunate places who are feasting on scraps of the truth. It reminds me of a letter that I received from Earl Poisty. He was the head of Russian Christian Radio. Over the years, he became kind of like the Billy Graham of the former Soviet Union. Literally millions over there through the decades knew his voice because for over 40 years, he's been on the radio preaching the gospel through Russian Christian Radio. And unlike with us for decades, it was the only voice some of them uh, had ever heard. Russian Christian Radio is headquartered in Estes Park, and Earl, along with his family, attended our church there. In fact, I married him at the age of 70 uh, to his second wife, four years after his first wife had passed away, and I grew to love him as a father. He had so many stories to tell. He told a story about a Russian woman who came up to him as he was distributing Bibles just after the Soviet Union broke up. The Billy Graham of the Soviet Union showed up and they could associate a voice with a face. He gave her a Bible and he said when she got the Bible, she could not believe her eyes. At first she froze, you know, and just held it in her hands. And then she raised it up and she kissed it. And then she held it to her bosom and started rocking back and forth, laughing and dancing, while at the same time he said she was crying. <sighs> When's the last time you did that? And many of our missionaries have similar stories to tell. Compare that to America. I mean, I mean to Israel, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Where what Israel had received, far from being just, you know, a trickle, was more like a fire hydrant. Where the word of God had been gushing through the prophets and the teachers and the writings for well over a thousand years. Day to day poured forth speech and night to night revealed knowledge. Just like Paul says in here in Romans 10. And yet of Israel, he says, in our last verse for today, where it sums it all up, verse 21, all day long, all century long, for a millennium, I held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That is all night long I've been pleading, all day long, all night long I've been pouring out my revelation and look what I get for it. They've got their fingers in their ears and they don't even know it. How could God reject his own people? That's, if you remember, that was the question that launched this section in Romans. Here Paul seems to be saying, how could he not? Truly, they are without 
excuse. That's the teaching of this passage. So how do we apply it? Well, it's a lesson of history that we dare not forget. The history of hearing teaches that those who hear the most often end up responding the least. Such is the hardness of our hearts out of which arises the greatest of all illusions, the illusion of familiarity. And it seems that history is repeating itself because we in America have heard far more of God's truth than any other nation in history, Israel included. God's voice has, you know, gone out into all the land in a country that has more pulpits per capita than any other nation in the world. Indeed, than most all of the other nations combined. And more Christian radio and television and Groups like Bible Study Fellowship and Community Bible Study and Precepts Ministries and Ligonier Ministries and audio sermons and video sermons and a massive print publishing industry churning out books and magazines by the tens of millions every year and Bibles. I mean, we have over 20 full English translations of the Bible and more than, get this, 7,000 editions like the Life Recovery Bible, the Full Life Study Bible, the Spirit-Filled Bible, the Believer's Study Bible, the Women's Devotional Bible, the Men's Devotional Bible, the Hope for the Future Bible, the Family Worship Bible, the Life Application Bible, the New Student Bible, the Cowboy Bible, to name a few. Recent Gallup polls showed that American Christians are consuming unprecedented amounts of Christian radio and TV and books and magazines. And what good is it doing? Well, all the surveys say the same thing. Just like Paul said in the concluding verse of our passage for today, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They've got their finger in their ears given what they're not doing with it. And they don't even know it. How so? Well, when it comes to ethics and lifestyle choices among Christians like sexuality, divorce, honesty on tax returns, etc., the majority of evangelicals do not live all that much differently than Christians. From rates of abortion to tithing, tithing. The nationwide average tithe among churchgoers is a whopping 2% in one of the richest countries in the world. Though I'm glad to say it's far higher here among more than a few seasoned saints who are taking their faith seriously. And you can tell it by a person's checkbook. But overall, one of the most in-depth sociological surveys to date showed that half of the American population claims a religion that does not inform their attitudes or their behaviors. And we're seeing it politically in some very unchristian words and deeds. I could cite many more examples, but what's going on here? Among God's chosen people, in what some say is God's chosen nation. I don't want to oversimplify a complicated problem, but in many ways, the heart of the problem is this. It's a lesson of history that we dare not forget that those who hear the most often end up doing the least. 
Because if the greatest of all illusions is the illusion of familiarity, then surely the deadliest of all illusions is the illusion of familiarity with God's word. It's one thing Luther came to see toward the end of his life. He saw that the preaching of the word on Sunday morning, while indispensable, is not enough because people grow dull of hearing. A few weeks ago, we saw how he said that I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends. The word of God did the work. And there was a lot of truth to that. But, you know, it's what he did at the Diet of Worms when he said, here I stand. By the way, uh, he did that 500 years ago yesterday when they called him to recant his teaching and to reject the word of God. And did he stand on God's word or what? He did. But as he matured, he saw that there needs to be more than just preaching. Here's how one of his biographers put it. By the end of the Reformation, Luther was bracing for the long haul. Back in 1522, Luther was able to boast from the pulpit that the Reformation succeeded because he and other Reformed theologians could sit in the pub drinking beer while the Word of God did all the work. But later on, the picture looked something different. By then, it was becoming clear to Luther that the preaching of the Word, while indispensable, was not in itself enough to achieve all the things that he wanted to see done. You may think that's all you need once a week on Sunday, but it's not. It's why our value, uh, our first value of being biblically grounded puts it this way. We stand on God's truth in dependence on his spirit who's got to bring it to life, reading, studying, teaching, and obeying the Bible as our foundation. Without that, we're on sinking sand. And by God's grace, there's, there is a lot of that going on here. But what this means is what, if you really want to go for it, you need far more than just uh, in a pastor, than just someone who can preach and teach. According to Scripture, you equally need a discipler and an equipper who can show the way for all of you uh, to do the same, to accomplish our mission by being a disciple-making family for Loveland and the world. If you want to put your finger on the one thing that is the deepest problem in the American church is that so few have been discipled. And if you want to change America, you've come to the right place. Bill Hall, in his groundbreaking book, The Disciple-Making Church, uh, put it this way. He said, people can be an acolyte, wear a robe, and carry a cross in a processional. They can teach a Bible study or be an usher. They can even pastor a church if they like. They can believe Jesus in the way we think of faith now as just mental assent to his teachings and the doctrine of the church. They can do all this and still not be followers of Christ. The contemporary gospel has given permission to the largest portion of the church to simply sign off on the basic facts of the gospel, get their sins forgiven, acquire assurance of eternity into heaven, then do a few religious duties until Christ returns. That's all it is. The contemporary church has reduced the gospel 
and hollowed out the true disciples' natural response to the gospel, which is to follow Jesus and build his or her life around his practices obediently. Receiving Christ is the starting line, not the finish line. It means game on. What does salvation cost Jesus? His life. What's it costing you? What's it costing me? Our lives, if we're true followers. My life then is an answer, an offering, a living sacrifice. And what's the solution? I must say, he says, that in the United States, our discipleship sloth has made us a mission field. The evangelical churches in the United States are in decline primarily for their superficiality in the preaching of the gospel. It starts with what's taught in the pulpit. And what's not being taught? Well, he goes on to conclude with this. Superficiality in the preaching of the gospel has led a generation of Christians to believe that following Jesus in discipleship is only an option for extra credit. It's not necessary for salvation, but it's helpful if you want to be serious. And being the lusty creatures we are, we most often have opted for a cheapened gospel in the body of Christ, one that is easy to live out because we're not discipled into Christ-like character and community. This has led to a lack of distinction in life and practice between Christians and non-Christians. And when the distinction disappears, the two become one. And that's what's happened in America, to a good degree. So what's to be done? Well, we as a church, in our mission and values and in our pastoral search, are moving concertedly in the right direction to truly be a disciple-making family, as our mission says reading, studying, teaching, and obeying the Bible as our foundation. That's discipleship, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's how he defined it. And you've got a great foundation for this over many years as a congregation because the bottom line of it all is this bottom line value to be biblically grounded, which is our bottom line value which begins, according to Romans 10, by really hearing the word of Christ. So what do you do if you've grown slow of hearing, as all of us do? What do you do when God's word goes silent on you? Well, speaking of the word of Christ, according to his word, directly from his mouth, the first thing that you do is to remember, remember. That's what Christ said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. They were the Bible church in the New Testament. But they had become like the Jews. It was all doctrine uh, without devotion, all mental assent. They had forgotten their first love. Remember we went through that a couple years ago? Their love for the Lord of the Word and their love for the Word of the Lord. And so he told them first to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, he said. Revelation 2.5. Remember your first love. All of us who know Christ as our Savior have truly heard. We've met the Lord of the Word through the Word of the Lord, at least once when we were saved, and usually it lasts a little longer, hopefully. 
That's why so often people who first become Christians, it's like they can't get enough of the Bible. I'm sure all of you have seen that. Or maybe it happened to you years after you became a Christian where you couldn't get enough of it. Christ says, remember that. I'll never forget the first day that it happened to me, and it helps me to remember it. It stirs it up, the spirit up again, just like Christ said it would. So think about the time it was for you uh, or about what it used to be like as you read his word. As I remember the day that, it, that, that he broke me free from the illusion of familiarity. I was a student at the University of Minnesota, and I had just gotten off the bus uh, walking my way home from school, and I couldn't figure out at that time what to focus on in my graduate work. I was interested in philosophy, humanities, English, literature, all this stuff, and what was I going to specialize on as I continued my education? I had to decide. It had gotten to that point, and uh, I, I had the Bible, I'll never forget it, in my right hand, and all around me was this beautiful day. All the trees, it was like, the, is, like it can only be in the Midwest or in Vermont where we last were. All the trees were like candy coated. There were flaming reds and yellows and oranges, you know, and, and purples. And they were, they were like burning bushes alive with God. And the veil was lifted, and I gazed about me like in wonder and bewilderment. At last, the world was on fire, just like Annie Dillard said, and all heaven was breaking loose. And then another veil came down. The Bible started to weigh heavily in my hand. And I, I saw it in a flash. It was like a bolt of lightning. That if all of that came into being through the word of God, and if the word of God is between the covers of this book, then what body of literature would be more worthy of a lifetime of you know, exploration, a lifetime of specialization, a lifetime of of devotion than the Bible. I felt like the psalmist. My heart stands in awe of your word, like the Russian woman who held it up. I will lift up my hands unto your word. I will meditate on your precepts. And the next day, I enrolled in seminary. It helps me to remember that. And I suspect there's something for you to remember too, if you're a true believer. Your first love for the word of Christ. So if God's word has gone silent on you, first Christ says, remember from where you have fallen. And then the second thing is this, is what second thing he told the Christ that the Christ told the, the church of Ephesus to do after he told them to remember, and that is to repent. We need to stop winking, you know, at our inattention, at how we've succumbed to the illusion, as though it were just a little white sin, if that. John Calvin said, we represent our, to ourselves as minute and trivial the vices with which we abound. According to the scripture, being hard of heart, it's not just, you know, an innocent disability. No, it's a, uh, it's a flagrant depravity that grieved Christ deeply. It's the same cultural Christian disease that he saw in the Pharisees. 
Hardness of hearing betrays a hardness of heart that won't let anything sink in because deep down we don't want to change and we can live like hell. Or maybe God's word can't sink in because we're so filled with other things like Facebook or dopamine hits from the internet. Really, we need to repent under it all of our contempt because that's what it is. Because you see, the familiarity that blinds our eyes to a world that's a miracle, the same familiarity that dulls our ears to the world through which the word through which the world was created, the veil of familiarity that can cast uh, that we can cast over all that we see is one of the chief signs of our depravity. That we would, in effect, hold such things in contempt as if we own the place. Which is why he said to repent when we remember from where we've fallen. Don't play with it, it's deadly. Remember, repent, and then he said to the church at Ephesus, do the deeds that you did at first. Which in this case means to persevere. Don't fall away from scripture. Keep doing it. Keep going to it like you did when you first believed. Keep doing those deeds. We all go through dry spells, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And there's a lot of stuff out there on devotions that will help make it new for you. As C.S. Lewis said, it's part of the maturing process, though, to go through Dry spells, he said, is a part of the maturing process to do from the will alone duties that have lost all relish. That happens with our devotions. I usually have to persevere by reading the same passage at least two times in the morning before the veil is lifted, at least with a verse or two that I can then carry with me. And to just keep on keeping on through those dry spells. That's what we need to do. To pee, persevere. According to scripture, there are two R's, remember and repent, and two P's, persevere, and then finally, the rest of the scripture teaches that we need to pray. Which brings us back to where we began, that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He is the answer. We can't do it on our own for anything. You will be saved from the power of sin, and in this case, from being so hard of heart that you're hard of hearing. So strong is the illusion of familiarity that's brought on by depravity, that our depravity, that we can't even see or hear without him. Only he can do it. Which is why David said, you have opened my ears, O Lord, Psalm 40. Or Isaiah, he awakens my ear, Isaiah 50. He awakens my ear to listen. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. It, it, it's the heart of discipleship that we're talking about today. And so throughout the scripture, you find the godliest of saints take heart, calling on him again and again to open their eyes to see, to open their ears to hear the truth of God's word. Because as true disciples, they want to follow him. They want to know and show him, like our mission says. And so you, you pray like the psalmist did 
In Psalm 119, 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. You pray like he did in Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. You pray, give us this day our daily bread, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's laid it in our hearts, and we need to give it into our hearts so that we can enjoy it. Even that we need him for to lead us to the pastures and then to help us eat. You pray like, it's, like we sang, we have come with open hearts. Let the ancient words impart ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. You call on him like I have to do, not just in my devotions, but for my sermons. I mean, every week, almost without fail, when I start preparing a message, I feel dead on the inside, and so, so does the Bible. And so each week, I often have to agonize in prayer all through the week before it comes to life. And when it does, I do too, because faith comes by hearing, and just hearing, really hearing the word of Christ when the Spirit flows. Most weeks, I never cease to be amazed at the power of sin to cast the illusion of familiarity over all I see, even over the greatest of all books in the most deadly of all illusions. And yet again and again, I see what happens, not just to me, but to others, when I remember and repent and persevere and pray until the Spirit flows. Wouldn't happen without that. And the same is true for you. It can be this way with you. It can be, as I know it already is with a whole lot of you. So keep on keeping on. As the worship leaders come forward, it can happen to you too. As it does here in a most unusual way, we've got a great foundation. If through it all you call on the name of the Lord, he will save you not just from the penalty, but from the power of your iniquity. And in this case, from the illusion of familiarity, who opens our eyes and ears to see these and to hear these wonderful uh, words of life. Let's all stand. The first verse is a prayer. So let's pray it together as we sing.